What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today is going to be a Q&A episode, but first, a little life update. Over the weekend, Jenna and I moved from uh, New Jersey to just outside of Austin, Texas, drove for whatever it was, 26 hours, and um, we're very happy to be here. If you're from Texas, give us a shout out. And we hired movers to move the bulk of our stuff, you know, just come in and they do it all for you and it's really great. And, you know, we just drove some of the essentials that we needed in the car and the rest of the stuff is kind of coming, you know, with the, with the movers, but they're not going to be here for like at least a week. So we're, we're slumming it, uh, just, just kind of making do, uh, we don't have any chairs, any furniture, any tables, any silverware, literally nothing, but it's been kind of fun. And so sitting in my guest bathroom right now. So if the sound quality isn't what it normally is, I apologize. I'm going to do my best in, um, uh, uh, post recording to kind of edit things down and see if I can make it a little bit better. But nonetheless, here we are. First question is from function to freedom. And she, she, I think she asks an age old question. Should I bulk then cut or should I stay at maintenance and recomp? Ah, like (laughs) I'm going to answer this question uh, very generally because I have to, because I don't know anything about you. Like if you're asking somebody, should I bulk? Should I cut? It's like, I don't know what your goals are. I don't know what your current level of body fat is. I don't know what your current level of muscle mass or, or training experience is. Like, I don't know anything about you. If you're asking somebody this, like add some context. So I'm going to answer this question with a small, maybe educated assumption of where you might be based on the kind of person who asked this question. So the kind of person who asked this question is normally in this, like, I hate the term, but like skinny fat, like, uh, you know, zone where, you know, you kind of realize that the physique you might be after both has more muscle and less fat than you do right now. And so you're asking, which of those two things should I do first, right? And I, and I kind of can intuitively assume that because, you know, if you were a little bit more overweight than you are right now, then you probably wouldn't be asking this. You'd be like, okay, I'll just cut first. And if you were super lean and you didn't really have the muscle definition that you were after, you probably wouldn't be asking because you'd be like, okay, I'm going to bulk first. And so you're probably in this phase where you're like, I don't have that much fat, but a little bit more than I want. And I don't have nearly as much muscle as I want. So I know I need to do that too. So you're usually in this spot where you're like, you feeling like kind of like a little soft, you know, fat loss would likely be part of your goal, but muscle gain is too. And so if this is you, which again, I'm not sure it's you, but assuming that this is somewhere where you are, you always have the same three options, right? You can recomp at maintenance. You can recomp in a deficit because it's likely that if you're in this skinny fat zone that you are still eligible for some appreciable muscle gain you can actually recomp to a meaningful degree. You know, you can't really do that after the first several years of of adequate training and dieting. But let's say that that's not you and you're somebody who's like, okay, I'm skinny fat. I need more muscle. I need a little bit less fat. I'm a little bit new to training. What do I do? You can recomp at maintenance. You can recomp in a deficit uh, or you could gain in a surplus. And let's look at each one of those and kind of talk through the pros and cons because that's what you were, I would do if we were, you were my client. This is, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You could recomp at maintenance. Now, what does that mean? It means that you have a great life because you have more calories, right? Great lifestyle. Life is easy. You don't, you're not in a deficit. We're going to talk about that in a second. You're not hungry. You have great workouts. You have better muscle building, better muscle building side of the recomp equation than if you were in a deficit. And it's easy peasy. It's just, this is your best life. Maintenance is your best life. And so what you really do have the opportunity to make some appreciable recomp at maintenance, you might want to take, you know, it up on that. Um, cool. Yes. Okay. Just, I would say you, obviously you're going to lose less fat. You're going to, you know, gain more muscle during the recomp equation at maintenance than you would if you were in deficit. You're obviously going to lose less fat on that side of the equation than if you were in a deficit. So so option number two is recomp in a deficit. Well, fuck man, being in a deficit, you have all the deficit woes, you know, you're a little hungry. 
yeah, lifestyle takes a hit. You know, you have a, you have to make more trade-offs, a little bit more. It takes more thought and it takes more being hungry and it isn't as fun. I don't think I need to explain to anybody that the downsides of being in a deficit. But I'd say hmm, you might more immediately have a physique that you are a bit more excited about because you will be still building an appreciable amount of muscle if you are relatively new to training. And if you're losing more fat, you might in the short term like the way you look a little bit sooner. But you have to deficit, right? You have to deficit. And I don't think that that's mutually exclusive from doing a uh, recomping and maintenance. I think you will still see recomp and you will still see physical changes. Maybe not as much if you were, you know, accelerating fat loss a bit in a deficit. Third option is uh, you could go into a surplus and, uh, you know, this is probably, I'll tell you, this is probably the least option that I would give. I probably would not do this. If you're wondering if you should bulk or cut, then you probably wouldn't be super excited gaining more fat from here. Um, yeah, I, I think that, yes, you would maximize muscle growth like you would in any context being in a surplus. But if you're asking me, should I bulk or should I cut? It's probably because you have some level of body fat that you're considering that you'd want to get off. And adding more might be the worst of the, or the, the, the least likely option for you out of those three. So I default to, without knowing you, right? I just default to thinking that maintenance, recomping at maintenance with high protein and hard training is the best of all worlds. I, you know, I think you have a, a unique opportunity to have a really easy life right now where you're eating at maintenance, high protein, hard training, recomping, seeing physical changes, not having to be hungry, right? Like just, you know, if you would deficit, maybe you would more quickly see a physique that you liked, let's say, whatever. Um, but I do think you have a unique opportunity at maintenance to have really easy gains, hard, good hard training, good hard energy for training, uh, a good lifestyle with more calories and see really great recomp. So I would probably do that one. Next question is from Tra Transforming Tessa. And she asks, what do you do when you have a highly active client that gets injured and is now severely limited in types of movement? It's funny, I, I added this question specifically because I do have a client like this. Uh, she just sprained her ankle and she's very active. She loves to lift, she gets a lot of steps. It's like, what do we do now? So I'm gonna kind of walk you through that um, scenario. Um, four questions that come to mind. Do we lower calories? Do we adjust workouts? Do we find other cardio to do? And do we freak out? And I'll start with that last one because that is absolutely not what we're going to do. We're not going to freak out. Uh, I know that there are some injuries that are more severe than others that are going to limit you more, are going to limit you more for longer than others. You know, there's different level, levels of magnitude and duration. But in this case, I'm going to talk to a sprained ankle, maybe three to four weeks off of hard leg training and potentially like harder, you know, longer cardio bouts. Um, so we're definitely not going to freak out. Nothing bad is going to happen. You know, whether you lose, people want to just talk about whether or not they're going to lose muscle. You will, you will lose muscle. You will in a binary sense. Like someone's like, yes or no, I lose muscle. Yes, you do. If you don't train for a month, you lose muscle for sure. But at the end of a calendar year, if you trained 11 months, or you trained 12 months, are you going to have more, less, or the same amount of muscle? I would probably say the same, or a literal indistinguishable amount less um, it, for the 11-month person. Because you, you, when you lose muscle, you also resensitize to this training stimulus. And when you come back, you get a little bit of that like recoil, that little bit of that muscle memory effect. So we're not going to freak out. Yes, it's going to be annoying. Yes, it's going to take you know your first uh, a couple blocks of training are going to be kind of easing back into it. Um, but any muscle you lose, you're going to gain back right away. At the end of a calendar year, you're going to be in the same spot. The only way you're not in the same spot is if you don't take your injury seriously and you try and train through it or you come back too early and you really set yourself back 
pretty far. Um, next question, did we lower calories? You know, normally it, 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 it highly depends. It depends how long you're going to be out. It depends how less active you're going to be. In this context, this is somebody who was getting about 10,000 steps or more and is now going to get ah, less than half of that probably. Um, we lowered calories by an absolute smidge. I think by 100 calories, um, mostly because I don't think, I'm not saying that those extra steps don't increase expenditure. They of course do, but I just, I'm of the opinion that let's wait and see what happens. You'd be surprised how little your total daily energy expenditure might change when you drop steps, you're injured. You know, your body works harder to fight, to heal. And some of that increases caloric needs. Uh, and so I'd rather just wait and see. It's like, okay, I sprained an ankle. I was getting 10,000. Now I'm getting 4,000 or 2,000. Should I lower my calories? It's like, okay, maybe a tiny bit, but let's wait and see what happens. Don't freak out. Don't slash your calories. Just see, wait and see what happens. Did we adjust workouts? Uh, we did. We were doing a, a four-day upper lower split, two days upper, two days lower. And it's just unlikely that we're going to be doing a lot of lower body Um so what we did was we went to a three-day upper body split. So just upper body. So at least there can be something that you're doing that feels productive. So you're working out three days a week. Uh, and we added like a little bit of like a bro day, upper body day to that. So now it's doing, instead of doing two days upper, two days lower, we're doing three days upper. And listen, if you, in, in this context, if this person had a leg extension and a hamstring curl uh, and some other equipment that maybe wasn't intense on the ankle, we would try and work around it. This person happens to be in a CrossFit box, which you know, it doesn't lend itself to a lot of obviously having machines. Cool. Next question. Can you talk? Oh, it's from Gengar4. Can you talk about how to successfully transition from having a coach to going solo? I love this question. This obviously happens to me all the time. Like as much as I want coaching to last forever, I know that it doesn't. And so this happens to me all the time. I've got people who, you know, end coaching at some point, And then we have this you know, somebody will be like, Hey, I'm, this is gonna be my last month. And it's like, okay, how do we set you yourself up for success afterwards? So I'm going to start with what I think is most important. I think this idea of how to successfully transition from having a coach to going solo has to start from the minute you sign up for coaching period. Like this is what you should be thinking about. You need to be educated. You need to ask your coach a million questions. You need to make sure you're having face-to-face communication and being heard and asking. If your goal is to be able to do this solo, then you need to be hiring a coach who will prepare you for that. And then you also, as a client, have the burden of the responsibility to kind of make sure that that's what you're getting. Like learn, ask, learn the why and the how behind what you're doing. If someone asks you why you're doing something that your coach told you to do, you should know the answer. You should be able to explain it to them. And that's on you to ask, but it's also on the coach to make that a part of their coaching. And I'm not trying to, you know, put my coaching up on a pedestal. There are a million good coaches, but I think like it's important to bring all of your clients in on your decisions and the programming. Like, you know, I don't know if my clients could 100% do their programming on their own just as good without me. Like I do, obviously there's some skill involved there, some higher level of experience, but those who express this as a goal tend to direct conversations more towards learning. Like if your goal is to one day be able to do this on your own, then you should be asking, Hey, you know, can we collaborate on a program? Can I make my own and can we critique it? How's my technique? You know, what's our protocol for, you know, increasing calories out of, into a reverse? How many calories do we go over in a surplus? What's our target rate of gain? Like, you know, you should be asking these questions from the, from day one. This is not like, oh, I'm going to cancel my coaching next month. Like teach me how to do this on my own. Like, no, no, no. This is something that happens from day one. 
Um, I have a few clients who, after lots of discussion, you know, every time I have a Zoom call with my client, we will try and spend some of that time, depending on where we are, building their program together and talking about why we would make certain swaps and what worked and what didn't and, you know, why this rep range and why this exercise order. Like, I want them to know because I know coaching doesn't last forever and I just want you to be in a better place when we're done. And, and the truth is, most coaches are afraid that you're going to leave, right? Like, they're, they don't want you to know. I don't find that to be a beneficial strategy. I don't think it's fulfilling for me or for the client to treat it that way. Like, I'm not afraid. Like, I, I hope that what I provide as a coach it provides value. And I actually, man, it's more intellectually stimulating for me to have clients who ask a million questions, who want to learn. What's RIR? Why am I only going to failure in the last week. Um, how do I know when to go up in reps? How do I know when to go up in weight? How many calories should I drop when I go into my deficit? What are the trade-offs? How do I calorie cycle? Like, shit, man, you should be able to answer those questions because you should be asking those questions. I would say I take on that burden as the coach to make sure, um, you know, a lot of my coaching is it coincides with educational video courses that I give to my clients to make sure that we're learning along the way. But I do find that if your goal is to one day be able to do this on your own, well then, man, you should be, uh, um, attacking or, or arranging the conversations you have with your coach from day one to make sure that you're able to do this, right? Once it's your, once you know it's your last month and you let your coach know, like, I, I think you should have already begun this, uh, uh, this line of questioning and learning and understanding a long time ago. But I do think like at that point, you know, the more you let your coach know, the more you can be a bit more specific about, hey, what am I doing for the next six to 12 months? And how can I, what are the questions that I still have? What are the loose ends here? Right, And what's cool is all my clients end up having like six to 12 to 24 programs already made that they can run through. It's like, you keep all of those spreadsheets, you keep all of those programs. And so that, I, I tend to think that that's pretty cool. I have clients who are like, hey, you know, I have 12 programs. Um, you know, I, I feel like I can learn from them and I feel like I can cycle through those, you know, across time. So awesome. Next question is from Crumplin, Texas. What's up, Texas, fellow Texan? If you're from Texas, hit me up. I need, you know, if you're from Austin, I need recommendations. Where's a good barbecue? Where's a good, uh, uh, like, is there hiking? Do people hike in Texas? I need to get outside. Anyway, it's been gorgeous weather. We fucking love it so far. Um, cool. Anyway, Crumplin, Texas asks, thoughts on working out barefoot? First and foremost, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, in the most loving way, you can't ask a question that starts with thoughts on because I don't know what context you mean. Is it thoughts on working out barefoot for muscle growth, thoughts on working out barefoot for strength training, thoughts on working out barefoot for uh, uh, endurance athletes, like running barefoot, like, and then, you know, unfortunate thing is when I ask somebody, hey, is this, what context do you mean? They're like, all of it. It's like, fuck that. Like, you know, you can't, I'm gonna answer this question because I, I have a concise answer, but in general, people are like, thoughts on protein? It's like, fuck you talking about? There's so many contexts. Anyway, not a shot at you just something I want people to think about going forward. If you're asking a question, if it starts with thoughts on blank, it's just not contextual. It's not very helpful. I don't really know what you're asking. So next, thoughts on working out barefoot. In terms of hypertrophy, in terms of strength training, in terms of functionality, I think our, I think working out barefoot is great. I think that it can help with balance and help work the muscles in your foot, which obviously indirectly helps with balance. Um, and can help you become more aware of what your foot is doing while you're training, which can actually be pretty important if you have, you know, aspirational performance goals, right? Like being able to understand the tripod foot and understand, you know, how you want your toe gripping the floor and all of these things can be done probably a little bit better barefoot. And so I think barefoot training can be awesome. I don't think it's superior for hypertrophy. I don't think it's superior for 
anything outside of balance and maybe awareness of where what your foot is doing, which I think are important. But does that manifest to greater leg hypertrophy or strength over time? Maybe. Um, so I think it's great for deadlifts, uh, great for squats. And I also think, you know, if I had to rank what people were wearing when they train legs, I would rank, I think, getting like a flat-soled shoe, like a Metcon or a Nano, or a heel-elevated shoe, a squat shoe, I think would be your best bets, uh, specifically for squatting. Um, but you need a flat-soled shoe for deadlifting. And so a lot of my, or and, and squatting, really, you really just should. It's not a huge deal, but I don't want my clients squatting and deadlifting in their NMDs or in their uh, uh, ultra boosts or whatever, like the, with the big, or their running shoes with their big bubble on the, on the bottom of their shoe. Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do heavy back squats on your bed, right? You wouldn't do heavy back squats on your bed. And so I wouldn't do them with this big cushion on the bottom of your shoe. So my best advice for barefoot training is if you like it, do it. But if you, if you're showing up to the gym for leg day in a pair of, let's say ultra boosts, whatever shoes that have a big cushion on the bottom and you're doing squats and deadlifts that day, I would go with barefoot instead. And so I have a lot of clients who are like, not really trying to spend a whole lot of money on certain shoes just to lift. And so they show up in their running shoes and that's fine. And then we get to the squat rack and you take them off and you squat barefoot and you put them back on. So I think that it can be totally great for that. Um, I'd say that it's barefoot training is not really great for stuff like split squats and reverse lunges, just like stuff when you're stepping back onto your toes on the back leg tends to not be very comfortable, but try it out. And squats, I've deadlifted and squatted a ton barefoot and I, I really do enjoy it. Definitely does work on you know, a bit of proprioception, a bit of like understanding what your foot is doing and that it should be doing something and it shouldn't be passive. But yeah, it's not probably over the long term superior in many ways. Awesome. 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 Next questions from Ali Ply. And I think it's a she, I'm sorry. He or she asks, would love to hear more about your soccer background and transition to lifting. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, I'm going to try and keep this short. I don't want this to be about me. Um, you know, okay, so from soccer background, my family my family are from the Netherlands and where soccer is a big deal. It's just a sport that a lot of kids grow up playing. You know, on the world scale, we're known as a country that's pretty good at soccer. Um, and I was good growing up. I was, I was technically skilled, uh, but I was never in good cardio shape. I have asthma and that definitely played a part, but I've never been in elite cardiovascular shape in terms of like endurance, you know, not like walking up the stairs or just like functionally in life. I'm not getting exhausted just walking around, but you know, asthma plus just maybe just not genetically uh, a high level of endurance out of the gate just never was my strong suit. Um, so I was good, but I wasn't that good. You know, I was good enough to play in college, but if I wanted to, but I knew that that was it for me. It was never going to be a career. Um, and I didn't really have a ton of interest in making it my college life because I just knew that it wasn't going to be something I was going to pursue afterwards. And I say I wasn't that good because relatively speaking, Jenna was way better than me. Um, Jenna played in college. She was recruited. She went D1. Like Jenna is way better relatively speaking. And so we have a ton of fun with that. We're actually currently going to be looking for, I know it's hot as hell in Texas, but we're going to be looking for a co-ed team um, league to play in because we do like playing from time to time. Just kicking the ball around is freaking awesome. Um, as far as transitioning to lifting, I always had genetically strong or big legs. Um, otherwise I was pretty much a string bean, just like every other like 13, 14, 15 year old kid don't genetically have high levels of muscle mass in my upper body, but my legs and like, like glutes and quads were always like, okay, you guys got tree trunks. Um, and a friend, I was lucky enough to have a friend's older brother who took us, showed us some of the stuff. And, you know, 
as much as I had like a really good transition, I had people show me the gym, show me around, like we were still massive idiots. Like we were just idiots for a long time, everything to failure, always training arms, you know, could barely move my arms sometimes. Like we just idiots. And it's like, even it's like, no matter what, you're going to fuck it up sometimes. It's okay. Like you live and you learn. And so we definitely did those like dumb idiot teenage kid things. Um, and yeah, I probably started taking it seriously senior year of high school, prepping for college soccer, which I didn't end up doing. Um, and then it turned from this thing of like, oh, I want to prep for college soccer into like, I want to get girls. Like, like it just most juvenile scenario of all time. Like just trying to get jacked. Some girl I liked was dating some dude who he was jacked. So I need to get jacked. Like just total like testosterone driven uh, mentality of getting into it. But you know, I feel very grateful for that. Um, I guess in college I kept lifting, lifting, but didn't really make a lot of gains in the midst of like social lifestyle, like never sleeping and like just way too much recreational alcohol consumption. Um, but kept kept lifting and knew it was going to be a part of my life. Definitely enjoyed it. Definitely enjoyed learning about it. But um, I think the more important thing I want to talk about is maybe why I fell in love with, I don't know, quote unquote fitness, whatever, lifting, nutrition, just taking care of one's body. I, I found I find it to be very logical. I found it. I find it to be very. It's you know, there's no cheating it and you get out exactly what you put in. Yes. You know, genetics are different. You know, people are going to gain muscle mass at different rates. People are going to find fat loss to be easier than others, but the rules are still the same. We're still playing on the same field with the same rules. Everybody can build muscle and strength. Everybody can lose fat. Excuse me. Um, and, and people differ in genetics, but still you get out exactly what you put in. It is very logical, and yes, it's more than that, and you can break it down to the emotional and psychological side for sure, but at the end of the day, there is a logical side of it and an inclusive side of it where everybody can do it that I just freaking love. Thank you for asking. Next question is from Emily Jallis, 1989. Do people with more type 2 fibers build muscle easier? This is an important thing that we need to say. Before I even answer this question, the answer is, first of all, the answer is technically yes. People with more type 2 fiber, type two fibers build muscle easier. But practically, this is not something anybody should ever, ever, ever think about. It doesn't change the way you train. It doesn't change what you should be doing. And it's just a little bit of mental masturbation, but it's still, you know, whatever. Technically, you asked a question. Technically, yes. People with more type 2 fibers build muscle easier. So quick breakdown. There are two types of muscle fibers. Technically, there are more. But for this context, there's type 1 muscle fibers, which are known as slow twitch fibers, and type 2 which are known as fast twitch fibers. Type one fibers or slow twitch are more endurant. They're less powerful. They recover faster. They probably respond better to higher reps. They can handle more volume, but they have a lower potential for growth. Type two fibers are more powerful, less endurant. They fatigue faster. They probably respond better to lower rep training, but they have a higher potential for growth. And so that last part about potential for growth, it's really your type two, your fast switch fibers that are uh, um, growing a bit more. And so you, the question is, do people with more type two fibers build muscle easier? They do probably for two reasons. One, because those type two fibers have a higher potential for growth over the long term, but also those fibers are more built for the type of training that builds muscle. They are more powerful. Um, and yeah, they're less endurant and they fatigue faster, but that's cool. You're not running a marathon. And so, you know, where I feel like this matters most, well, I'll come to that in a second, but most people have a fairly even split and each muscle group can have a little bit different uh, distribution of, of, of fibers. And so some muscle groups might, you know, respond a little bit better to higher or lower rep training. An example can be, again, all on average, this is all very general and it's something you should never ever freaking think about ever. Um, in general, our hamstrings tend to be a little bit more fast twitch and that kind of makes sense. Those are the muscles 
primarily involved in sprinting, which can be, is a very powerful, not endurant exercise. Um, and so, you know, hamstrings tend to, let's say you're doing RDLs or something, you know, they, they, hamstrings do tend to kind of maybe respond a little bit better to slightly lower rep training. I don't mean singles and doubles. I mean, you know, 15 and less, let's say, for example. Um, but again, most people have a fairly even split and most of the time it's not something that you should really ever think about. There's way better proxies for how should I train this muscle group than what type of fiber distribution do I have? Like this is not something you should ever think about after listening to this. You should be like, oh, that's cool. Muscle pitch fibers are a thing and some do something and some are better for the other. I, you know, maybe I'm trying to think of what would actually be helpful here. Um, I think that on average, men have a higher percentage of type two than type one when compared to women. Women have a higher proportion of type one compared to type two than men. And so we do see that women tend to be able to handle a bit more volume. They tend to recover a little bit more quickly from training. They don't fatigue as quickly, but they also tend to be a little bit less powerful, less overall high absolute level of strength, which makes sense. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, I guess this matters again from just from an intellectual stimulation standpoint, where if you look at like the best power lifters, the best Olympic lifters, the best sprinters in the world, those people are probably more fast twitch dominant, right? You look at the best endurance athletes, they're probably a little bit more slow twitch dominant. Uh, and so it's a little bit of like this self-selection where you, if you have a really high level of fast twitch dominant and you get into strength training and you grow more and you are more strong, like stronger, uh, you might self-select yourself into something like powerlifting or Olympic lifting or sprinting or something like that. Whereas if you're not, and you have a natural proclivity towards better endurance, you might find yourself in those sports because you just tend to be built for that a little bit better. Um, and you might find out over the years, which again, it's not something you can decide as a novice. I'm talking about over years and years of training that you respond better. Maybe you have better pumps, better mind muscle connection, better feeling of disruption in the muscle at higher versus lower ends of the hypertrophy rep range. So it might be that over the years, you're like, you know, my quads really uh, um, respond better to like the 15 to 25 rep range. When I do that, my quads blow up. I feel it really well. I get a high level of disruption. I feel like there's a ton of growth there. And when I do, you know, squats in the five to seven rep range or the, you know, five to 10 rep range maybe, or, or whatever it is, for example, you know, you might not get as much out of it. And so you can maybe be like, okay, maybe that has something to do with my twitch fiber dominance um, or proportion. But again, it's not something you should really ever think about. But the answer is yes. Next question. How many minutes are we in here? I don't even know. All right, moving on. Next question uh, from AB Ramos913 asks, can't do barbell hip thrust because I'm at home. What should I do instead? I'm just going to list some exercises because, you know, part of me wants to say you can do barbell hip thrust. You just need to buy a barbell. Um, and, you know, part of me wants people out there to hear that, like, it's probably a good idea to invest in some equipment if you're going to pl be planning on staying home or being forced to stay home. It doesn't mean you need to buy a barbell with unlimited weights, like probably not. I mean, it doesn't mean you need to, but if doing barbell hip thrusts is important to you, do barbell hip thrusts. Um, but what can you do instead? Well, you can do dumbbell hip thrusts and dumbbells might be a little bit more monetarily and practically accessible. So dumbbell hip thrust, single leg hip thrust, B stance hip thrust, glute bridges, single leg glute bridges. Like, you know, you have to think what are, is the barbell doing? The barbell hip thrust or the barbell hip thrust is training hip extension. So what exercises train hip extension? For the most part, stuff that you're gonna do at home are thrusts, bridges and RDLs. So all of those I just mentioned, plus dumbbell RDLs, single leg RDLs, B-stance RDLs, sumo RDLs, 1.5 RDLs, band-resisted RDLs, there's unlimited variations of RDLs and hip thrusts that you can do. You just can't do the barbell hip thrust one, which means you're probably going to be 
a bit limited with the amount of weight that you have available. So what I would say just on average is to embrace a little bit of the higher rep ranges because it's unlikely you're going to be able to load heavy enough to hit like a heavy five to 10 RDL. You just don't have enough weight. I mean, maybe you do, maybe you have adjustable dumbbells and it's going to work really well. But you know, let's say this is somebody who has limited weight or you literally have nothing, man, if you have nothing, one, I would temper your expectations of muscle growth. And two, I would embrace tempo uh, adjustments, go slower or add a 1.5 rep. But more than anything, I would embrace the higher rep ranges. Like you just, if you don't have any equipment, you're not hitting the sub 10 rep ranges. You just don't have the load for that. So embrace those higher rep ranges. Next question from Daily, uh, Daisy Elizabeth. Is it safe for one to eat at or below their BMR when cutting calories if one is moderately active? This is a question that I just, I feel like I, I'm, I feel very passionate about answering in a, in a more general way. It's like, just think about this. The first thing I thought of when, when I thought, when I read this is like people fast, people go on like three day fasts and nobody bats an eyelash. Now you're talking about eating at below their BMR and you know, let's say BMR is about ah, eight, nine to 10 times your body weight on average. So let's say 10 times your body weight. Like people fast and nobody bats an eyelash. You're talking about eating 10 times body weight, asking me if that's safe or not. Um, and so this is gonna be a tough to answer in a straightforward way. And I'm gonna rephrase your question. Is there a calorie range that will make it not safe? I mean, and I'm gonna answer generally because I think there are circumstances where there might, that answer to that might be maybe, but I just don't know. I mean, I think there are certain calorie ranges that below which you will be wildly less successful because you will quit, not because it's, I say successful, I mean successful in, in fat loss. Like there is a, you say, is it safe? Is it safe? I, I, don't, I don't know if there's calorie range that becomes not safe because you're missing the other variable here, which is time. And you're missing another variable, which is how lean are you when you start? And so, you know, it's a bit contextual, but I don't, I just, if you diet, here are the questions. Uh, you know, if you diet at below BMR, are you going to have worse metabolic adaptations than if you diet at, you know, 13 times body weight, let's say 12 to 13 times body weight. I, I, I can't imagine somebody saying yes. Metabolic adaptation, your body's natural defense against weight loss is going to be mostly, if not entirely due to the magnitude of weight loss, how much you lose, not how fast you lose it. Right? We can say you know, your, the amount of calories you're eating equates to how fast you would lose weight. Right, The lower the calories, the faster you lose weight. So I'll use those kind of interchangeably. Like If you lose weight fast or faster, your metabolic adaptations aren't going to be worse if you lose the same amount of weight. Like uh, if, if somebody does a diet for four weeks, I really, want, I really want you to conceptualize this with me. If somebody does a diet for four weeks and loses 10 pounds, and then goes to maintenance for six weeks. So a total of 10 weeks, 10 pounds. Somebody else diets slower for 10 weeks and loses 10 pounds, right? Spends 10 weeks in a deficit and loses 10 pounds. Is person A less healthy or less safe than person B, right? Let's go over it again. Person A, four weeks in a really big deficit. Maybe they're eating below BMR, right? And they lose 10 pounds, it's two and a half pounds a week. But then they go to maintenance for six weeks, just so we can equate 10 weeks to 10 weeks. So that's 10 weeks, four weeks in a, in a deficit, 10 pounds lost. So a pretty aggressive diet. And then six weeks at maintenance. Second person, 10 weeks in a deficit, much slower deficit, about a pound a week, which by the way is amazingly fast progress. Um, 10 pounds in 10 weeks. Is person A less healthy than person B? Is person A in a less safe place? Of fucking course not. 
It's ridiculous. If someone diets extremely fast and then goes to maintenance, but in the same span of time compared to somebody who diets continuously for that amount of time, loses the same amount of weight, albeit a little bit slower, it's the same thing. You know, I'm, I, it's, I'm talking about physiologically, it's the same thing. I, you know, do I think going below BMR and calories is smart? I don't think most people can sustain it. I don't think you're doing something that's unsafe. I think you're setting yourself up for failure. I think you're setting yourself up for saying fuck it and binging. Like, I don't think something especially bad is going to happen to you other than you saying fuck it at some point because that's such low calories. You're going to feel like shit. You're going to, food focus is going to go super high. But like physiologically, if you diet aggressively versus dieting less aggressively, is there a safety concern? I highly, highly doubt it. Um, I think going very low for a long time is gonna have repercussions, but those repercussions would be very similar if you lost the same amount of weight over a longer period of time. If you go very low for three months, let's say you do 12 weeks of a very aggressive diet and you lose 40 pounds, which is, which is obviously nuts. Let's say you lose 30 pounds, but what if you lost 30 pounds over 30 weeks? I don't think that there's gonna be any difference because the person who lost 30 pounds in 12 weeks just is going to spend 18 weeks on the back end of that at maintenance to make this an apples to apples comparison. I think they're both going to be fine. I just think the person who maybe tries to lose 30 pounds in 12 weeks is going to fail more likely, more likely to fail, not definitively, but more likely because it's going to be more uncomfortable. And the trade-off of discomfort for, you know, fat loss return is going to be too great. It's going to be not fun. Um, and, you know, in an, in specifically in, in people who have obesity, we do see in the research that very low calorie diets tends to out tend to outperform moderately low calorie diets in the obese population in the research and those are for sure below we're talking about sub a thousand calories sometimes um that's for sure be below bmr we see a lot of health markers improve we even see adherence is probably higher on average with very low calories versus moderately low calories and we can talk about you know how that uh appetite attenuation tends to happen. It might be more specific to the obese population. But what I'm saying is I just don't think, like you said, is it not safe? Like, you know, I think the amount that you lose and how lean you get and how lean you are when you start is going to make this question more contextual. I don't think there is an amount of calories you're going to eat. And I'm like, oh, that's not safe. Well, you didn't tell me how long you were doing it for. You didn't tell me what weight you, what, you know, body fat or body comp you are right now. Like, I just think people are like, yeah, if I diet on really low calories, I'm going to be unsafe. No, no, no. Because you're not going to have to do it for as long. It's like, it's like, it's the same thing with like driving a car. If I need to go one mile or whatever, I could go 120 miles an hour and I'll get there a lot sooner and I can stand there waiting for you. Or if I go like, you know, it doesn't matter if you go 120 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour, you still went a mile. You still have the same less amount of gas in the tank. And it just isn't going to make a big difference if you diet more aggressively versus you diet more slowly because the person who diets more aggressively is going to, it's going to uh, be a shorter period of time and they can go back to maintenance and spend more time at maintenance. Now I'm not advocating people do this. Again, I don't think going below BMR, which by the way is totally arbitrary, let's say dieting very aggressively. I don't think it's smart for most people, specifically people who aren't doing it with guidance or a coach. It's just not smart because you're going to say, fuck it. It's not, not smart because it's not safe. You know, and maybe not safe needs defining as well. Physiologically, I don't think anything out of, uh, uh, you know, uh, like especially bad is going to happen in this context. Maybe if you're already very lean, right, you'll see more muscle loss. And if you get dieted down to being very lean, maybe you see some hormonal disruption, maybe even amenorrhea. 
just don't think that that has to do with how you got there. It has to do with how lean you got and or how lean you got or how lean you were when you started. Um, yeah. Anywho. Next question. How long are we into this? Um, who knows? Kelso93 says, full body splits or body part splits? And I, 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 you know, I know I beat this to death on Q&A sometimes, but um, just for those who probably don't know the answer, I want you to know that the most important thing is going to be total volume per muscle group per week. If you do the same amount of sets in a three-day split of upper lower full body or three-day split of full body, full body, full body, but you have the same amount of sets per muscle group per, per week, you're going to get the same results. Like most people will do equally well with either. The finer details of body part or full body are likely reserved for more advanced people. And I don't say that like, you know, ye underlings don't have to worry about this, but I just think that this idea of like what split you do is mostly like establish enough volume, which I would say is probably about eight to 20 sets per muscle group per week of muscle groups that you want to grow. And then split that up in a logical manner. If that's doing three days a week full body or doing three days a week of lower upper full or full four, body, four days a week of, full, of upper body, lower body or four days a week of full body, like I'd rather see you pick personal preference once you have enough volume. Like, you know, there are going to be splits, I suppose, that maybe, no, I don't even think that there are. Um, I think it might be a bit more practical to split things up a little bit just from a psychological standpoint, and I'm grasping at straws there. Um, I think if you're training three days a week, I think full body is freaking awesome. Um, I also think lower upper full is freaking awesome. And maybe the more the more that your, your frequency increases, the more I would gear towards at least splitting between upper and lower body. But, you know, there are plenty of people out there who have just, you know, Jeff Nippert, I know, released like a six-day full body program. And it's possible, as long as your muscle group per week your sets per muscle group per week is at an adequate level and you enjoy your training and all the other ducks in a row, like you're going to be fine. So TLDR is it doesn't really matter. Get your sets per muscle group per week in order, which is about eight to 20 sets per muscle group per week of stuff that you want to grow and then split it up in a way that you like. And I, I, let's say, let's go through some basic ones really quick. If you're training two times a week, you got to do full body twice because we really do want to be hitting each muscle group at least twice a week. If you train three times a week, I'd say full body all three times or doing something like lower body, upper body, full body is a good idea. If you're training four times a week, I think upper lower split probably is your best bet. And then within that, you can kind of bias towards what you care about more. If you're training five times a week, I think doing an upper lower split with an extra day of whatever you care about most is a pretty rational way to go or doing something like upper lower push pull lower. Um, and if you're training six days a week, you're probably not listening to this podcast or you're, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're probably not listening to this podcast because you're too busy fucking training all the time. Um, if you're training six days a week, come see me because it's most likely the case that you are not organizing it in a logical, intelligent way is what I would say. Um, but it's possible. And I know plenty of advanced folk who do six times a week because they really do need the volume. But most people listening to this podcast just do not. Alrighty, how many more do we got? Oh, we have a ton more. Okay, well, I'm going to see. Got another 10 minutes here. So next question is from EOL7000. Mara, thanks for the question. And she asks, so we moved to Texas and we were, I know why she's asking. She says, what's it like trying to find a new gym? What do you look for? And I know somebody else, shout out Katie, asked me what we were using at home. Were we at a chain or were we at a boutique locally owned gym? Um, essentially like, what's it like trying to find a new gym? So that's what we've been doing this week. We went to a couple of gyms. We're just trying to figure out where do we want to plant our feet? What do we want to do? 
Um, for a little bit of background, I worked in a boutique and individually owned gyms for the, like the last 10 years. I had never been a member of a global gym, let's call it, you know, LA Fitness or Golds or 24, um, Snap Fitness, Blink, whatever, Equinox. I had never been lifetime really a member of any of those gyms for any period of time. I'd always had like the gym that I was working in, which was a boutique gym. That's just where I would train. Um, and so, you know, first I'll say there's pros and cons to both boutique versus let's say global gyms. Um, individually owned tends to have more of this like family community vibe. You know, the owners say hi to everybody. It's very transparent. And I, I always enjoyed that. And I enjoyed it more as somebody who, and I'm going to say a lot of what I'm going to probably say now is specific to me. I don't think that this is everyone. You might see it differently than me. And I, I support you. That's awesome. Um, I appreciated that family vibe, that more transparent, that everyone knows everybody mentality. When I was working in the gyms, it made it a much more pleasant environment as a trainer knowing everybody and having it be very transparent, everyone high five and what's up, good morning, all that stuff. I love that. Um, commercial gyms, they're, the upside is they have way more equipment. They have way more stuff. Um, again, it's how you're going to decide which one of those things is more important. And I think as a trainee, I care way less about the family vibe. I care way less about saying hi to people. I just have gotten, it's not that I have resting bitch face when I'm in there. It's just that I would get in and I get out and I want to do my training. I don't want to be there for any longer than I have to. I love training, but I can't be in there for two hours. I'm trying to get in there in like 60 to 75 minutes max. Um, and I'm just not looking for it to be a place where I'm like, you know, schmoozing and spending a lot, like loitering and spending a lot of time hanging out there. And so that like community vibe to me at this current moment in my life doesn't really mean much to me. And the equipment side of things, like what the, what the gym has means way more to me. So currently I'm like a little bit of a snob with, you know, Jenna and I probably on the same page, but I don't want to speak for her, but I'm a little bit of a snob with my gym selection because it's an important thing to me. I love training. I take my training seriously. It's an important part of my life and that's cool. So I'm a little bit picky. Um, my gym that I worked in previously was a little bit of a minimalist gym, uh, you know, dumbbells, barbells, squat rack. We had a cable machine and a leg press, which was awesome. Uh, that did kind of add a little bit more exercises to our arsenal, but it didn't have like a long, you know, the like the pit, it's like the elephant graveyard of machines where it's like, you can see for miles. It didn't have that. Um, and you don't need that to get good workouts, by the way. You, you have dumbbells, barbells, and a bench, you can get kick-ass workouts. But at some point, maybe if you're a little bit more advanced, that variation and some of the the machines that work really well for your bone structure and you have a really great mind-muscle connection with them, they can really mean something long-term. Um, and so I made a little hierarchy of what's important for me. And then you can kind of read that and be like, oh, like that's, you know, I would say that, that I would see that differently. So for me, the top thing is at this current moment, what I'm looking for a gym is like, what equipment do you have? Um, you know, do you have all of the basics, a lat pull down, a cable row, a chest assisted row, um, you know, and then do you have a whole line of like hammer strength machines? Like I just want there to be a, at least a whole line of machines, a tricep extension, a leg extension, a hamstring curl, a couple hamstring curls. Um, I really do enjoy having multiple variations. And then specific pieces of equipment that I think have been important for me that we've kind of seen as we're going to these gyms is like, I need a place that has bumper plates, um, at least one platform where you can you know squat and deadlift a little bit more effectively and a lot of machines. So the hammer strength stuff is really great. I'm a big fan of the hammer strength chests and rows and some of their vertical pulling. Um, I think for pressing, I don't tend to use a lot of machines, chest presses, even uh, a pec deck is great, but I don't need it. I think cables would work fine for flies. They're great. But for pulling, I do tend to really like, yeah, I do barbell rows. They're probably my favorite back exercise. But outside of barbell rowing, 
I don't do any other free weight pulling motions. Like uh, pullovers, I would do totally, but if I have a lat pull down and a chest assisted row and a hammer strength vertical pull, like I'm going to do those instead. And so, you know, you can do it. Um, you know, chin ups totally. You could totally do chin ups. Uh, you know, I've tend been doing the, I tend to be doing the assisted variation lately. So yeah. Um, I also wanted a place that had some unique squat variation machines. So hack squat variations, at least one hack squat. At least I would love a pair of hack squats, you know, one that's like the 45 degree one, one that's more vertical, um, would be really, really great as squat variations. I've been squatting and squatting and squatting and squatting and squatting for so long and there's nothing wrong with squatting, but it's nice to have variations of those, you know, heavier knee dominant movements. So I'm looking for a place with multiple hack squats or man, a belt squat would be freaking awesome. Um, and then the other things I care about is I suppose in this order would be how busy it is at the time that I go. I don't really, you know, it wouldn't be great if there's a zillion people in there, but I tend to go at a pretty dead hour of not going in those hot zones. How clean it is, um, it definitely matters. It's not huge. If you had all the machines and it wasn't like spot clean, I'd still be fine with it. And then price matters. But truthfully, if you have all the stuff that I want, I value that. I don't mind spending. <sighs> this is a weird thing. I hate talking about money. I don't know what everybody's monetary situation is, but you know, the difference between a $50 gym for a month or a hundred dollar gym for a month, but if the hundred dollar gym has way more stuff and I'm way happier there, like that is an investment I see as a no brainer. It's an investment in my health, my mental health, my physical health, my just enjoyment of my training. It's just I'm not saying that that amount of money doesn't matter to some people. It very well might, but for me, I'm speaking as somebody who this is very important to me. And so I'm okay spending a little bit extra. So I'll give you the TLDR. We went to Gold's Gym and LA Fitness. They were very similar. They had that whole fucking elephant graveyard of machines, which was great. Um, I wrote Gold's had sick lighting. <laughs> um, and I, I meant that as it was light in there. It was bright. It had some natural light. And when we went to LA Fitness, it was dark. And it just wasn't, you know, just didn't get that like... Uh, um, natural energy vibe from it. Um, Gold's had two different hack squats, which I loved. It wasn't busy. Um, only thing that it had missing was it only had one platform, which I feel like could be a hot commodity with bumper plates. Uh, but when we went to LA Fitness, I had no platform and no bumper plates and they only had one hack squat and it was broken. Uh, they only had one or they had two squat racks, which I think is insane. If it's busy, there's only two squat racks, like you're not getting one. Um, no bumper plates, no platform. So we were going to go with gold, gold gym. And I hope any of that was, was helpful. Um, yeah, as I was saying, I was like, I hope somebody out there is actually giving a shit about this question. Um, uh, because I'm sure there are people out there who are looking for new gyms and again, kind of just circle around, like, I'm sure I'm a bit of a gym snob. I'm sure that I care a little bit more about the, you know, the depth of different pieces of equipment there than maybe everybody would. Um, and you can get an amazing workout at a CrossFit box with barbells and dumbbells and a bench and a GHR. Like it doesn't need to have, you don't need to have a zillion pieces of machinery. But, but if somebody asked me, what's probably going to be better over the long term for muscle growth? Yeah, you're gonna have more variation. That's a good thing. Awesome. Last question for today. Maybe I'll do two more. I do like the next two. They're really good. Is from Katie May Main and she asks, do you adjust calories for a deload in a deficit or a surplus? And I'm going to answer this very generally. If you think about this, you know, a, a decent rule of thumb, which I'm not saying you need to follow because I break this rule and I'll tell you when and if it might be a good idea to break it, is like, is to just always be eating at maintenance when you're not training, right? Because let's say you're in a deload and you're not training. You're not training hard enough to cause any stimulus anyway. Um, when you're in a deficit, well, you're in a deficit now and you're not training. So what's what are you risking? Well, you're risking some muscle loss. A lot of muscle loss? No. But 
just pragmatically, just just technically, are you are you risking muscle loss? Yes. What about being in a surplus? Now you're in a surplus and you're not training. You don't have that training stimulus. Well, what are you risking? You're risking excess fat gain. You know, there's no point in being in a surplus and not training. You're just gaining fat. Um, and so, you know, some reasonable argument to just go to maintenance then too. Um, yeah. And so, okay, I'm in a deficit and I'm not training. So I'm risking muscle loss and now I'm in a surplus. So I'm not training. I'm risking fat gain. What should I practically do, Jordan? What should I do? Truthfully, the first one, how much muscle are you really going to lose in a deficit one week, not training? Probably none, literally none, nothing that you would ever be able to measure. And how much extra fat are you really going to gain one week in a surplus, not training? Uh, Again, same answer, pretty much none. Um, And I would say an added caveat to the surplus example is like, you're probably, let's say you finish your workout block on a Friday. You're probably still adapting from those last two workouts, Saturday, Sunday, into Monday, maybe even Tuesday. And so staying in a surplus for those adaptations to occur in that more anabolic state, you might want to stay in a surplus for the first half of your your deload um, and then go to maintenance. Now, what I want you to understand is this is not consequential. It's not consequential. If you want to stay in a deficit during a deload, you have, be my guest. Uh, totally fine. If you want to keep your flow going, right? If you feel like you're in a good groove and you don't want to take a diet break every time you're in a deficit and it comes time to deload, then I support you 100%. You're not going to lose any muscle that's appreciable. Uh, it's not going to matter at all. If you say, hey, I'm in a good groove. I want to keep going. I don't want to come up to maintenance just because I'm in a deficit or just because I'm deloading. I support you. Personally, that's what I'm doing. During my deload, I kept my calories the same. Deficit was the same. Um, I know that they're the cost benefit of that. And I more highly value the fact that I'm in a good groove with my calories, good groove with the foods I'm eating, good groove with how hungry I am. And so I just want to keep going. So you can absolutely take the stance of, Hey, when I'm not training, I'm at maintenance because that way I won't lose any muscle and that way I won't gain any extra fat, but you can also just stay where the hell you are and keep the flow going. If that continuity is more important to you, I don't think it's a big deal at all. All right. Last question is from Sue joy 10. And she asks, Besides spirits, what is the best alcohol to drink? I usually drink Coors Light or white wine. This is, I read this question and I literally looked at Jenna and I was like, like most people are spending too much time thinking about what is the best or lowest calorie alcohol to drink instead of thinking, man, maybe I should drink less quantity of alcohol. Like, yes, there's a difference between uh, you know, getting a vodka soda and getting a foofy uh, uh, cocktail at a restaurant that might have, you know, sh- liquid sugar and all this other stuff in it. And maybe it's, a, you know, 100, 200 calories extra. Like, I agree. You have five vodka sodas or five of those cocktails, the caloric difference will matter. But I think more people need to be focused on how much they are drinking. Like you're having, you're probably having, for alcohol to be getting in your way, you're, you're probably having too many drinks, not too high of a calorie drink. And then you're probably having too much drunk food, not, oh, I got a, I got a regular beer instead of a light beer. It's like that difference is not what matters. You having five drinks instead of one is what matters. Um, and so sure to answer your question a bit more directly, I think uh, liquor, any liquor plus a non-caloric mixer. So you're getting a rum and Coke or a vodka soda, um, are all fine. I think that that is a, that is a smart way to go about it. I think light beers are a little bit lower in calorie for sure. I think seltzers these days, basic AF, um, you know, you got your white claw or your truly, I don't even know. I barely drink. Um, but your liquor plus non-caloric mixer, your light beers, your seltzer, and then maybe wine. Wine's probably slightly higher in calories, but not by much. But I just, I looked at this question. I was like, people are out there thinking, how can I get hammered 
with the least amount of calories when instead they should probably just not be getting hammered while they're trying to lose weight, let's say. Like, like how can I have 10 drinks and, and manage my calories? It's like, you're already asking the wrong question. You're probably better off not having that much to drink. Um, so just make sure you're also thinking about the quantity, not just the caloric value of what you're drinking. But sure, you know, vodka sodas, something with a, some form of alcohol and a non-caloric mixer, light beer, seltzer, and, and probably a little bit of uh, wine. But wine is probably more like other stuff. I'd say the first three a little bit better. Um, but yeah. All right. Listen, thanks for listening, guys. Hope the sound quality is right. I'm going to do my best in post-recording to kind of touch it up. And hopefully by next episode, I, my desk will be here and everything will be here. So I appreciate you guys listening. If you want your question answered on the podcast, just shoot your question into the, into the Q&A box or shoot me a DM and I will get it on the show. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.